welcome to Christian Historical Fiction Talk. I'm your host, author Liz Tolsma. It is so good to have you along for another episode. We have a wonderful returning guest today. I have been waiting for quite a while for her next book to come out, but Joanna Politano is finally here with her new book, The Lost Melody. So it's such a gorgeous book. We talk about it in length, so I'm not going to go into it too much here, but if you have not read The Lost Melody yet, you're going to want to go out and pick it up. It's fantastic. I can see it being up for a lot of awards next year. I absolutely loved it. It was stunning and breathtaking. So we'll get into our chat with Joanna about The Lost Melody in just a little bit. In the meantime, a couple of things. First of all, subscribe, please, if you haven't done so on your favorite podcasting channel, do it. And that way you won't miss out on any of these fabulous episodes that we have. Second of all, please follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, because that's another great way to keep up with Christian historical fiction talk. And I love interacting with the listeners over there. So please come find Christian historical fiction talk on social media. And If you wouldn't mind also popping over to my website, liztolsma.com, and checking out how you can become a patron of Christian Historical Fiction Talk, please think about it, pray about it. You'll get lots of extras by becoming a patron and supporting this as my thank you to you for being a loyal member and subscriber to the podcast. I would really appreciate that. Okay. That's enough of that, and it is time now to dig into our interview with Joanna Politano and talk about her new book, The Lost Melody. Welcome to the show today, Joanna. It is so good to have you with us. I'm really honored to be back, Liz. I was thrilled when I saw that you had a new book out and realized that it had been a while since we'd had you on, and so... I wrote to my virtual assistant and told her, we've got to get Joanna on the show. So this is so much fun. And then, of course, it made me, I wanted to read The Lost Melody anyway, but it made me really want to read it. And I have to tell you, you just took my breath away. It was a stunning book. I was traveling at the time when I read it. And I told my friend I was traveling with, I said, this, this book's so good. It's misty and creepy and and everything all at the same time and and beautiful I don't know how it can be all of that at the same time but it was so (laughs) thank you I'm really honored to hear that it it was a a book I wasn't sure anybody else but me would like (laughs) (laughs) well you you have one fan here at least and I'm sure that other people who read it are just gonna love it as much as I do oh thank you before we get to the book and talking more specifically about it. Why don't you just remind the listeners a little bit about who you are? My name is Joanna Politano, and I've been writing Victorian historical fiction for Ravel. So this is book six that's out, and they're all unconnected, just in the same era of history. A little bit of mystery, a little bit of romance, um, a bit of gothic feel, nothing overly creepy or scary, just a little bit in that direction, shadowy, abandoned estate type of thing. And then I live with my family in near Lake Michigan. I got three little kids, 
and uh, I'm a homeschool mom. Wow, that's quite a bit. All good stuff. <laughs> yes, yes, for sure. It keeps you busy. I'm sure I remember those days and just trying to fit the writing in. And I can't believe this is your sixth book already. Like you said, your little guy is a year old. This is your sixth book. I don't know where the years have gone, but oh, congratulations on that. Thank you. It feels like it goes so fast. And I feel like a slow writer, just one book a year. I don't think I could go any faster than that. <laughs> no, I'm sure with all those commitments that you have that you probably couldn't. And that's that's good. Enjoy when they're little because you'll blink and you'll have kids that are all in their 20s like I do now, which is just crazy. It's insane because <laughs> mine were just, just little like yours too. No, I'm certainly enjoying this stage. So let's get into the lost melody a little bit. Like you said, it's sort of misty and creepy, but not in a bad, creepy way, but just, yeah, a little bit of a gothic feel. Tell us what the book is about, though. Well, the book is set in a, a Victorian asylum. And when that, when God sort of invited me into that setting, into that story premise, I, I really put the brakes on. It was a little bit dark for me, but he kept kind of prompting, so... When I did my research, it actually isn't as dark in the Victorian era as people think it might be. I also wanted to juxtapose it with something that was really beautiful that we could all kind of look at is, you know, in contrast to the asylum. And the most beautiful thing that I could think of in Victorian England was music. So I have my heroine who is a concert pianist and she thinks in terms of music. Every person she looks at, every setting, she hears a, a kind of a backdrop that she'll associate with the mood of the setting or with the person's personality, something like that. So there's a whole lot of music. And then there's this mysterious melody that she's heard since she was a kid. And she also hears it in the asylum. And she's not really sure why. And she also has this ward that she inherits from her, her father, the guardianship of. And she has no idea who this ward is. And the asylum has no record of her. So she kind of goes in as an aide to figure out who this woman is. Yeah, it was such a fascinating premise. And you mentioned that the heroine thinks in terms of music. And that's so interesting that you phrased it that way, because I have a bunch of women that I scrapbook with. We get together once a year and do a scrapbooking trip. And one of the women just can put patterns and colors together in a way you wouldn't think. And she says that she sees the world in color. And mm. I realized I see the world in words. And that's very fitting. And my husband, who's a civil engineer, I asked him how he sees the world. And he says he sees it in shapes. So it's oh, interesting. interesting how, yeah, isn't that cool? How everybody sort of has their own way of seeing the world and it sort of plays into our strengths and weaknesses. So I just thought that was so interesting that the heroine of this book sees the world in terms of music. And it's just beautiful the way that you did that. Oh, thank you. It was a lot of fun. I've played the piano since I was a kid, so it was pretty easy to draw on my love for music. That was my next question. So you do have a musical background. Not a professional one, for sure. I took lessons from the time I was small. And then when I quit, I just, you know, when I got older, I just played for fun and sacred music and classical music. And at this point, it's, you know, for my kids, it's a lot of show tunes and Silly songs and kids songs and, you know, anything else that'll make them smile. 
Sure, sure. That's wonderful. But it's really interesting how music can play such a part of our life and change with the different seasons of our lives. And I love music personally. I also grew up with something of a musical background, not professional, same as you, but just a real Mm -hmm. love of it. And so that's one of the things I think I loved most about this book was the integration of music into it. Uh, You said that once you got researched in the asylums, the Victorian asylums, you found they weren't as dark as we would have thought they would be. What was it like researching asylums in the Victorian era? And what did you find out about them? Honestly, I had to sift through a lot of my presuppositions from fact, because we kind of think of, you know, electric shock therapy and people being chained up and things like that. But really, those were the two eras on the other ends. So, you know, maybe 100 years before, they would be, you know, there'd be torture and a lot of really terrible things going on. And then in the period after that is when electric shock therapy began, like around the turn of the century. So in... My era, it was basically a bunch of people doing their best to care for a lot of mental illness that they didn't understand. So they put a lot of people away for things that we wouldn't now, postpartum depression, age-related dementia, and you know things like that, even deafness or epilepsy, seizures. And they would do their best to care for them with what they called the moral method, I think it was, uh, invented by a man named Tuke. He decided that clean air hard work and good food, good basic simple living was the best thing to help anybody. So that's what he employed at all of his asylums and that started to kind of canvas the English asylums. There were a lot of asylums popping up and they pulled people out of workhouses and put them in there and things like that. So they they had homes. A lot of these people were too sick to care for themselves in the workhouse. So they would shift them over to the asylum. And then, of course, all those other conditions I mentioned, those people would be in there. And they really, for the most part, seem to do their best to try to take care of people in the way they knew how. That's fascinating. That's really interesting. I wouldn't have thought that they would sort of employ things like hard work and fresh air, but those kind of things can be helpful with some of the things that you have mentioned and so that's really interesting how they did that. That's that's cool. Yeah, they actually ran these asylums as like a self-contained farm almost. They had everybody working in the laundry, the kitchen. They had butcher shops. They had all kinds of things that the residents would help with. The unfortunate thing is that it didn't necessarily seem to cure a whole lot of people because the release rate was very, very low. People tended to spend the rest of their lives there. So although it wasn't criminally miserable or anything like that, it was probably lacking a lot of hope for them. That's interesting that you would bring up the word hope, because even though this could tend to get to be quite a heavy and dark book without a bright ray of sunshine, because as you said, most of these people had no chance of really ever leaving the asylum, you weave a thread of hope throughout this. Was that purposeful? I'm assuming it was. And how did you go about doing that? I did my best to weave in hope just because, you know, any story that comes from a Christian author, like we have so much hope in our lives. And looking for that hope was actually kind of what made it into that book. 
that was a lot of my theme was when something looks like you couldn't possibly have hope, where do you find it? Well, as my character figured out, there's only so much a person can lock up about who you are. So they can throw you in a terrible situation. They can take away a lot of things, but you still have a lot of freedom within your own heart and with your own talents and things like that. Like you're still who you are. And so I was kind of hoping that, you know, people who are in circumstances beyond their control, maybe, you know, someone, other people's sin has kind of evolved into this circumstance in their life or they're just, you know, things didn't go the way they expected or planned. They still have a sense of, you know, there's, there's still quite a bit of hope in the midst of that situation. I read a review of The Lost Melody that says that it casts a delightful spell. And that's exactly what I thought as I read this. It was just a delight to read it. And and I felt like I was under this spell in the book reading it. How did you go about doing that? Well, it did have kind of a dreamlike quality. And I think a lot of that is because the heroine was, you know, she was on a night shift for a little while. And so she kind of had all these crazy dreams and she was never sure what was real and what wasn't. And of course, the the original song that she heard was, she thought, part of a dream. It was also very far removed from her own world. So it just, it felt like kind of a, a distant reality. And as I was writing it, it also kind of had that dreamlike quality. Every time I sat down, I felt like I was kind of slipping back into that that other world and it was kind of neat. Yeah, that must have been a lot of fun to write then. It must have been a lot of excitement and passion as you sat down to write every day. And it sort of comes through in your writing. You can see that this was something that you really had your heart and soul in. Very much so. Honestly, I felt like even in the note-taking process, God was already there before I got there. And it was just so exciting. He just kind of unfolded it bit by bit and shined a light on all the different facets of it until it got put together. It was a difficult concept because it was set in an asylum and, you know, attacking issues like mental health and things like that were challenging. But it was still, it was just a neat experience to uncover all the pieces of the story as I went. It's so much fun when books just unfold that way. I Those are the best ones to write. <laughs> some of them are struggles, but some of them just flow like this. Yeah, for sure. There is a connection in this book to a previous book called A Midnight Damp. And yes. mm-hmm. when I saw that, I picked it, I'm like, oh, cool. That's so cool. She put that in there. Was that something you planned or was that something you just deliciously dropped in there at the last moment? <laughs> it was actually not really planned. I just, I got to a certain point when I was like, I wonder if any of my previous characters would show up in an asylum. What year would this be? And when did my other books take place? And how old would everybody be? And because uh, I kind of, there was some, there was a particular type of person that I wanted to have as a character in the asylum, and it fit really well with characters from a previous book. And I was like, oh, I wonder if I can make that work. And it just, it kind of flowed in seamlessly, and it worked really nicely. It did. I won't give it away, like, what happens or anything like that. But I just thought it was so cool. It was just a little tidbit in there, but to tie them together was so much fun. Yes, that was kind of neat. There's a lot of art in the last few books that I've written between music and ballet. And then I had a violinist and things like that. So linking them together in a book that was so filled with music kind of seemed like the natural choice. For sure, for sure. 
one thing as the mom of a child with special needs is I loved how you showed that these inmates were people too, because it's likely that if my daughter had lived at that time, she would have ended up in a place like this. But I just thank you so much for that. I don't know if I'm really asking a question or not, but thank you for showing that these people, whether it's a physical disability or a mental disability or whatever is going on with them, that they are people as well. And I appreciated that so much. Oh, thank you. Honestly, I think, you know, they say that every pastor has one sermon that they preach over and over and over from different angles. And every writer has the one thing that is like really on their heart. And for me, with every single book, that has always been the value of people. And just, you know, people being created in God's image. We're all image bearers. And so that kind of seeps into every single book. But especially this book, I really thought and prayed about each, how each character was shaped and, you know, kind of treated them as if they were people. And I dedicated the book to my grandfather because he was a musician and he also could look at any person and see not just their potential, but their value. And, you know, he didn't see them as broken, but, you know, could be great later on. He just saw, this is who you are and that's really cool. And so his, his example, I think, really impacted my heart over the years. Well, and that just shines through. And like I said, I appreciate that so much when people look at my daughter and don't see her as broken, but just see her as beautiful. And so you really touched my heart with that. Thank you so much. Thank you. And your daughter is so blessed to have parents like you. Oh, thank you. What is the purpose? What is your purpose in telling a story? Hmm. As far as the theme or? Yeah. Why, why do you think we tell stories? Why do you think people in general and why do you think authors in specific tell stories? I think we're so wired to perk up at stories. You know, that's how people make things entertaining when they're giving a lecture or, you know, just that's what we use for entertainment. It's we gravitate towards stories. We really want to have our attention caught and then to see where it goes and to see it wrapped up in a finale. And there's just something about it that we can we can put a whole lot of truth into fiction and deliver it in a very unique way and we can just find a lot of hope and heart and entertainment. We're just so driven towards stories. I don't know why that is, but it's just part of our DNA. And we see it in how Jesus taught when he was, you know, telling stories and things like that to get his point across. And we see, you know, even Alan Arnold says that in the creation account, we see that the very first introduction we have to God is as a creator. So I think it's just in us to create things like that. And to, you know, stories is such such a huge part of how we think and how we feel. Yeah, I agree exactly that that's why we gravitate to our stories. We love to hear the beginning, middle, and end and how it all comes out. Now, this is a question I ask a lot of my guests because it seems like writers just always take on almost too much sometimes. But in addition to your writing career, you have a family, you have small children, you're homeschooling. How do you manage to balance it all? Honestly, it feels like balance is non-existent. 
Somebody once described it to me as like standing on one foot. You know, your body kind of shifts one direction a little bit and then it counterbalances and shifts the other direction and a little bit forward. And that's kind of how it is. Sometimes certain things are emphasized. Sometimes certain things are neglected a little bit. The only way that I've been able to have any form of balance is to just by put the first things first and kind of let things fall as they will. So my house is not really clean. My yard is full of weeds, but my kids are educated and happy and they have a lot of fun with their mom. And I get to pour my my heart into books and stretch my brain and my heart that way. Yeah. So, I mean, I try to put real people before imaginary ones. And then I try to put my writing before kind of the more inconsequential things like weeding my yard. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I hear you. I just took a walk this morning and came back and looked at my now mostly dead garden and went, oh goodness, look at all those weeds. I'm glad it's October and I soon the snow will <laughs> yes. be covering them. <laughs> yep, I'm thankful so for winter for sometimes. Sure. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and where you live near Lake Michigan, you probably get a lot of snow, don't you? We do. We actually get lake effect from Lake Michigan, so we get dumped on pretty regularly. <laughs> right, right. So n- no worries. You won't see it until the spring. <laughs> I'm okay with that. Now, it seems kind of funny to jump ahead because the last melody just released. I had pre-ordered it and then I'm like, I was overseas and I just was hoping and praying that I would wake up that morning and that it would be on my Kindle because I wasn't sure if my Kindle would be able to download it when I was out of the country, but it did. So I was really thankful for that. But I know that writers always have something churning in their brains. So what's up next for you? I am currently working on a book that takes place just a little bit later than this book, the very beginning of the Edwardian era. And it is about the silent movie industry and one of the actresses in the in the theaters. Oh, that sounds really good. And that'll be out next fall then, hopefully? I think it will be out the following spring, actually. So I have a little bit of some buffer time in there because I had a baby and I had to stop writing for a little bit. Sure, sure. Okay. Well, you're going to make us wait. In the meantime, while we're waiting for that, how can listeners go ahead and connect with you to keep up with you? As far as interaction, I have a Facebook page where I have an author Facebook page and then an Instagram account. My website is jdpstories.com and I send out a newsletter that you can sign up through there. And I also have a prayer where you can email me prayer promises and I will respond in email and things like that. Oh, that's wonderful. Well, I can't believe how the time has flown by, but it has been so great to reconnect with you and to catch up with you and to hear about the last melody. Thank you so much for joining us today, Joanna. Oh, my pleasure. It was really fun to talk to you again, Liz. A great big thank you once more to Joanna for joining us today, for taking time out of her very busy schedule to sit down with us and to talk about The Lost Melody. If you would like to check out more about Joanna and more about her newest book, then please head over to my website, liztolsma.com, and you can find all that information there as well as a handy link to purchase your own copy of The Lost Melody. If you don't see it right on the front page of the website, click on the podcast tab 
and you will see all of the episodes listed there. You can catch up with episodes that you may have missed. Well, next week, we have another fabulous guest, and this time it's going to be Allison Pittman, and she is here with a, another installment of Barber's Doors to the Past series. And she, I believe, is the one who kicked it off. She was either first or second in this series. And she is back with another installment of it, and it's called Laura's Shadow. Now, I know from talking to some of the authors who have come on here and also from talking to some of you, the listeners, that you got into loving history and loving historical fiction because of the Little House on the Prairie books. And I admit I'm one of them. I devoured the books when I was little. I watched the TV show when I was young. I'm old enough that I actually watched it live when it was on originally. I hate to admit that, but fell in love with historical fiction and history in large part because of Laura Ingalls Wilder. And she does a wonderful job of picking up one of the minor characters from Laura Ingle Wilder's book, These Happy Golden Years, and spinning a whole book around it and a what-if kind of book. And there will be characters and scenes from the book that you will recognize in Allison's book, Laura's Shadow. It's so much fun. We had so much fun geeking out about Laura Ingalls Wilder and talking about the book that you're going to want to be sure to be back for that episode next week. So please join us then. I thank you so much for listening, for sharing with your family and friends about Christian historical fiction talk and for spreading the word over on social media. You are great fans. You are great listeners. And I hope you have a wonderful week. We will see you next time. Mm -hmm.